This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Leader ReadyCast, a podcast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. I'm your host, Eric McNulty. At the MPLI, we talk a lot about getting smarter than your brain. For leaders, this means counteracting the amygdala hijack or, or going to the basement, as we say, recognizing cognitive bias, and understanding other insights from brain science. My guests today have used that same underlying science and work with leaders in our homes, schools, and communities. Michelle Palladini is a detective and school resource officer for a Massachusetts Police Department, as well as a yoga and mindfulness teacher. Donna Volpita is the founder and education director of Pathways to Empower. Michelle, Donna, welcome to the program. Thanks, Thanks for inviting us. Really glad you're here. It's a really important time to have this conversation. Uh, let me just start by asking you each to, to tell us a bit about your work and, and how you work together. Michelle, why don't we start with you? Sure. I uh, really started my, my work with mindfulness when I myself was struggling, you know, as, as a young police officer who was seeing, you know, so much devastation and so much destruction and, and kind of trying to wade through sort of the trauma that I was experiencing and not really having the tools, not really being equipped with the tools, you know, not just in my formal education, but also as a, you know, young officer in the police academy, you know, there, there wasn't as much emphasis back in the early 2000s on, you know, techniques for stress reduction, uh, never mind mindfulness. So really the path for me started on a, on a personal level. And as my career progressed, I really started to see kind of the, the brokenness in my own community and the brokenness in humanity that really has roots in trauma and what I really wanted to do was start to educate young people on ways that they could use mindful practice to help mitigate the stress response in the brain so that they, these children could really grow up with a strong um, sort of skill set for resilience and um, compassion and empathy and all of these things we know make a you know whole well-rounded person. And so I started um, a program that I developed called LEAP which stands for Leadership, Empowerment, Awareness, and Protection. And I started bringing mindful practice into the classroom with children. And it was really kind of a, a beautiful experience uh, with me as a, you know, police officer in uniform, you know, in the classroom with the kids, you know, meditating and doing breathing techniques and really seeing how that really united us. And it really helped me learn ways that I could serve and protect with a lot more compassion and empathy for my community and help play a part in, you know, building these um, kind of good citizens of, of our communities. And I started taking that uh, program nationally and teaching and training other officers in the program and also uh, training officers in, in mindfulness, which has kind of been my work for the last uh, couple of years which, you know, I think today we can look at as a needed and, and necessary practice for all officers, but, but all people in general, which I think is a uh, important topic of our, our chat today. We certainly could use more compassion and empathy across the board. Donna, tell us about your background. 
I am an educator by trade. Um, I was a teacher for many years in both general and special ed, um, mostly working with kids who had learning attention and emotional challenges. Um, and I went back and got my doctoral degree in learning disabilities, um, which ended up kind of being a degree in, in marginalized communities and understanding. Um, through that, I became very interested in how we could proactively build social language in children, which kind of turned to resilience and the idea of how can we proactively build resilience. I wrote a parenting book about the resilience formula, a guide to proactive, not reactive parenting, um, because I, I had four children of my own. And as they were young, I, I kind of used them as guinea pigs in how can we build resilience. Um, and then became very interested in the brain science um, and understanding how does our brain naturally respond to challenge. And I think with the background of working with kids who had gone through a lot of challenges and working with trauma and watching my own kids, became interested in creating a model to help people understand that brain's response to challenge. Um, and I developed what's called the resilient mindset model. And it's really simple. It has four characters. It takes kind of the brain science and, and boils it down to really simple, easy, easy ways to explain it. And then this past year, I launched a new business in January called Pathways to Empower. And we are trying to get the brain science of resilience and mental health into schools because schools are now beginning to be required to teach mental health literacy and educators really aren't prepared to do so. They're not trained um, in understanding that piece. And I think the critical piece to understand is the brain science. And as we are seeing so much going on and so much change and civil unrest, there, this is also a way to help explain to people what's happening in our brains and why we're responding this way and trying to get those conversations to be a little bit less threatening. That's great. Uh, and I think I like the way I, Donna, you and I have known each other for some time that you've taken very complex science and boiled it down to make it very approachable and accessible, uh, which I think is is critical these days because the brain science itself can be kind of mind numbing uh, in its pure scientific form, but it's actually really useful when you can distill it down into a form that, that, that uh, mere mortals can understand. And I, and I really enjoy what you've done. Donna, you, you did bring up the, the, the times we're living in now. and We've got a lot of turbulence going on. We had the pandemic for several weeks. Now we have protests in the streets. People are engaged in some really tough conversations. What are the most important insights people can use to put themselves and our youth on a, on a better path? Donna, why don't we start with you and I'll go to Michelle. I think that the clear understanding of where we are in the brain and why our brain responds the way it does. Our brain's primary goal is survival. That's, a, that's its primary directive there. You know, we, we want to survive. And so in the model, I, I have four characters that represent different parts of the brain. We think of decisions that we make as good versus bad, but our brains actually consider them in time frame. We have decisions for the long term and we have decisions for the short term. And the ant is the character that represents the part of the brain in charge of the long term decisions, like putting money in the bank, going for a run, eating healthy, all the things that you know will benefit us in the long run. 
The grasshopper represents the limbic system, which is our emotional brain that's in charge of the short-term decisions. He doesn't really care if you get that project done. He kind of wants to watch Netflix and eat Cheetos. Um, and the glowworm is the part of the brain, represents the part of the brain in charge of looking out for threats to survival. And when we are in a threat mode, her job is to switch control of the brain from the ant to the grasshopper. So if we see a car coming at us, our job is to switch, her job is to switch control to the grasshopper for fight, flight, or freeze. It gets us out of the way of the oncoming car. That grasshopper is the way that we can get out of the way of danger. But the thing is, she also responds, our limbic systems also respond that same way, that threat, fight, flight, or freeze to social threats to the brain. And we have an acronym for that, respect, equity, alliances, control, territory, and similarity. So understanding that those social threats also put us into that fight, flight, or freeze. The last um, the last character we have is the dragonfly, and the dragonfly represents mindfulness, represents that ability to override that glowworm and say, you know what, we're really not in a threat to survival. We don't have a car coming at us. Um, and so often when we're having these conversations, we go into that threat mode because they, it threatens our social status. It, it threatens our sense of identity. So we go into that fight, flight, or freeze mode, and we have those emotional conversations that really are not going to benefit us in the long run. So one of the things I love about the work Michelle is doing is that mindfulness, that mindful practice that strengthens that grasshopper, that uh, glow, uh, excuse me, that um, dragonfly's response of being able to override and say, no, we've got this. We don't need to go and be defensive and be aggressive and be, we don't need to go grasshopper. We need to have these conversations in a way that will benefit us all in the long run. We don't need to be guilty or defensive or angry. We need to look at what benefits us in the long run. And that mindfulness is so critical in being able to do that. Michelle, what do you think before I make a comment here? Yeah, uh, to kind of echo what, what Donna has said, and, and it's, it's been really kind of a, a beautiful merging of uh, both of our respective uh, works and passions because uh, Donna and I have presented together and have really talked about ways that we can use mindful practice to manage that stress response to get us, you know, as you had said, Eric, getting us out of the sort of downstairs part of the brain. Um, and, and the studies are really increasing. You know, we know that mindfulness is a, is a newer field of research. And, you know, we're, we're starting to really see the studies coming out that show that we are able to, with continued practice, sort of rewire the brain so that we can better access sort of that upstairs part of the brain where we are able to respond, you know, rationally and thoughtfully as opposed to reacting from that sort of limbic area of the brain. And when we're having these, you know, really challenging conversations or we're trying to manage our own stress response because we know that the way we show up, you know, is, is mirrored in our children, you know, whether we are teaching, whether we are parenting, you know, our, our children are sort of modeling off of us. And if we're not modeling resilience and really accessing that thoughtful part of the brain, 
we're not able to translate, you know, sort of these practices to our kids and to our interpersonal relationships with others. And so with continued practice, we start to sort of grow those fibers in the brain that really help us respond and really help us sort of increase that sense of empathy that now I'm not just looking at my lens of experience, but I'm seeing somebody else's experience. And while the, the event may not be the same, and, and maybe I don't understand as you know, a white police officer, what you know, um, a person of color has experienced on, on the other side, I can recall times that I have felt defeated or frightened or that there was no sort of no way out, right? And the event may be different, but I can sort of relate to those feelings of distress and upset. And so I can sort of increase my level of empathy, but then not only that, but my sense of compassion, you know, increases as well. And, and compassion is sort of a, a different center in the brain where we're actually sort of activating this, this network in the brain that allows us to take action. And I think that that's where so many of us, you know, really need to be at this point that it's not enough to just feel another's pain. We really have to take steps to help alleviate another's pain, whether that's somebody in our own household, a colleague, somebody in our neighborhood or our community. I think this is sort of a place that we can land right now. And, and I think we're starting to have these conversations in a really um, important, a really uh, structured and a really kind of beautiful way. It's so, so true. And I know that I, I've read studies that have shown that with regular mindfulness practice, you actually can shrink the amygdala, that, that glow worm. Uh, so it has, exerts less control over the brain, which makes making it easier to have a, a pro-social response rather than going into a defensive, reactive posture. Mm. Uh, so important. Now, what's the impact you see on a community that adopts this approach? If you, you know, talk about when you've worked with parents or in a school, um, what does this look like when it works well, Michelle? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of see it on the front lines of, of my work with youth and it's really uh, a testament to really um, kind of not just embodying these practices ourselves, but being able to, as the adults, kind of um, conceptualize these practices for kids and, and offer them in a way that makes sense to their world. And so when you really look at the data and the, and the data that I've collected has uh, largely been you know, qualitative, I have the children do reflections, you know, after they um, do some type of contemplative practice and the kids really, um, they, they put it in words, you know, the kids will say things like, you know, it felt, it felt good to know that nothing bad was happening, you know, in that moment. And it really makes you wonder, you know, what is so bad in this child's life that, you know, it, it felt like a huge reprieve that they were able to sit in silence for five minutes using a breathing technique you know, I've had children write that, you know, this should be a part of every single class that they're in in school. This should be a part of their education is learning how to manage the stressors. And so that's, that's our evidence right there that the children want these practices. They need these practices. And we as the adults have a lot of work to do to be able to sort of spread this like wildfire and really embed this into our systems to be able to give kids a, a positive outlet for stress so that our kids aren't resorting to the risky behaviors that we so often see as kids, you know, enter into adolescence. And if we really want to look down the line of how these practices can help benefit communities, 
well, we can look at the ways that we are looking for and desperately seeking change and equity in our systems. And if we embed more mindful practice, not, not in a utopian way and not in a way that um, is saying that mindfulness is a panacea, right? It's going to solve all of our problems. But if we start to really embed this kind of social emotional learning and, and really focusing on social emotional health of our communities, starting with our children, we begin to see sort of this ripple effect that when kids can learn to manage their emotions and they're bringing these practices home and they're talking about it at the dinner table with their parents. I've had parents reach out to me saying, you know, Oh, I was having, you know, a really bad day. And my kid told me to just do some combat breathing, which is something that I teach in the classes. It's really kind of neat to see that they can sort of have that, that shared experience of learning. And, you know, what happens when that, that child grows up and, and has a very, you know, difficult experience or an argument with somebody and they're able to bring some, some mindfulness and, and some breathing to the situation as opposed to, you know, perhaps an argument or some other type of, you know, risky behavior, self-medication with alcohol. I think we can start to see kind of the, the dots being connected as we move forward by offering these really simple and sustainable practices. Donna, want, want to take us through some quick combat breathing before I ask you your next question? Well, Michelle is, is the, I love the way she, she talks about the combat breathing. Um, so I, I will let her address that one because she teaches it so well. Um, and I think it's, I think coming from, from Michelle, it's really powerful. Um, okay, I just so wanna, let me ask you about your experience. Let's, let's talk about your experience in the community and then we'll come back to Michelle with the breathing. Well, I wanted, um, there were two things that I wanted to add to that, to that. When you were talking about the amygdala and how mindfulness can really calm that amygdala, one of the things that we're seeing is so much trauma. And I think that when we're, we're underestimating the impact that trauma has and how we need to actively address that trauma because trauma is where you're more likely to get that amygdala hijack, that when we're overfeeding that grasshopper, when, when our limbic system is on that defensive mode, we put ourselves at risk um, and the, the responses and often our fear responses look like anger. Um, so we, we get that fight fight going. And so I think it's critical to understand that brain piece and be able to respond effectively. I think having the language to talk about the brain and to be able to give feedback to one another and say, you know, have these conversations. One of my favorite stories of using the, the model was when my son was six years old and I was angry at him and he was angry at me and I went to speak to him and he said, mom, I can't talk to you right now. I'm in grasshopper mode. Having that language to have that conversation is really critical because when we're in grasshopper mode, we want to fight and trauma puts us into that grasshopper mode much more quickly. Um, and so being able to not engage in that fight can be very, very powerful. And understanding and having the language to talk about that brain science and say, you know what, maybe you need to do some combat breathing right now. Um, and maybe I need to do some combat breathing right now. And having that override is very powerful. It can really deescalate situations. I think about you know, the pictures with police officers that kneel in the moment. 
how much that can de-escalate the trauma of the situation. Yeah, I, I agree, yeah, Donna. Yeah, I think that um, it, it's very well said in terms of how we need to first, we collectively, you know, whether it's a child or an adult, having that language and just that recognition of, of when you're in that mode. And that's why I, I really love the work that Donna does in, in bringing the brain science forward in a way that is so understandable um, because, you know, we know that neuroscience can be very convoluted and offering, you know, the, the brain science in a way that anybody can understand, you know, from a, you know, toddler all the way up through the lifespan is so helpful because when we don't recognize the mode that we're in and we don't understand that this is our, our brain is trying to protect us, you know, and we often, you know, say things like, I'm just in a bad mood or I feel depressed, I feel anxious, you know, being able to sort of conceptualize what's actually happening in the brain having the language, being able to say it. And I know, you know, Dan Siegel talks about this all the time, the name it to tame it, you know, being able to just name and to label the emotion, to tame the emotion is the first step. It's the recognition. And then being able to use a tool like combat breathing, which, um, and for those who don't know, I could walk you through it, but it's also called box breathing. It's called four square breathing. There's many different, you know, names for this practice, but it helps to pull you out of that amygdala, out of that limbic brain and into a place where you can access that prefrontal cortex to really sort of have a balanced response to whatever is happening in the moment. No, it's absolutely so, so true. I think ha having that, uh, having that language is so important. We find it as well uh, because it becomes less threatening to be able to talk about it. And it gives you some agency back, gives you some control over the situation when you, when you can name it and when you know what to do to try and affect some change. Uh, and we see that in our courses in adults, as you see it with, with kids and, and with the, the adults you work with as well. Um, so Michelle, give us a quick one, two, three on combat breathing or box breathing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. We'll all get a little bit calmer right now. We certainly will. It's uh, one of the easiest practices out there, and it's one of the most studied and, and really the most effective. And what I love about this practice is it can be done anytime, anywhere. So, you know, I, I wholeheartedly believe in, in bringing these practices in a way that is um, sustainable. And so you don't need to be in a yoga class or sitting on a meditation cushion, right? You can do this as you're driving. You know, I do this as I'm driving to, um, you know, stressful calls in, in my police job, you know, where there's maybe somebody not breathing or there's, you know, a break-in in progress. You know, I need to be able to manage that stress response. But similarly, you know, I'll, I'll talk to kids about how they can use this practice while they're sitting in class and they're about to give a report in front of class and they're starting to feel that stress response or maybe you know they just saw something on social media that really upset them and they start to notice the symptoms of stress in the body this is a simple practice that you can do anytime anywhere nobody will even know that you're doing it because all you're doing is breathing and so the way that you do it is you breathe in through the nose for four seconds we can practice this together you hold the breath for four seconds. You breathe out through the mouth for four seconds. Hold the breath again for four seconds. And we'll do another round, breathing in through the nose for four. Hold the breath 
before. Breathe out the mouth before. Hold the breath before. And you can just return to your natural breathing. And that's really the, the crux of the practice. You know, you can repeat that cycle as many times as needed to get some relief. Um, for children, it can be helpful to draw a box and have the kids sort of trace a box. You know, they're tracing their finger up one side of the box for four seconds as they breathe in. That can really help with the mind-body connection. There's a, there's a lot to this, um, but it's, it's quite simple and, and very practical for, for all people. Yeah, in our work, we, we call this a trigger script and, and that, that being able to do something you know how to do helps counteract that amygdala, amygdala hijack and pull you out of the basement. And, and again, it is it's a wonderful technique because it is so easy. You can just keep it in your back pocket. It's always there ready for you and, and so, so easy to do. Now, what are some of the lessons you've learned along the way as you've been in interacting with people doing this work and teaching this, Donna? One of the things that I would say, we, we've been talking about in the moment of that amygdala hijack, what are some of the things we can do, which is really critical. I think one of the, other, one of the lessons that I've taken is how important it is to be proactive. So when we understand the brain science, we can also understand how to do things like know when we're feeding the ant and when we're feeding the grasshopper. When are we feeding the part of the brain that's going to help us make those long-term decisions? So in the model we have, um, the, the ant has the tools of a healthy brain and he's holding tools that represent how can we keep that part of our brain healthy because we're less likely to move to the grasshopper brain when we don't want to if we have those tools in place. So healthy eating, rest, um, sleep, exercise, mindful practice, um, compassion, engaging in compassion, pride, and gratitude. So um, one of the things that we've been doing is each week we put out a quick guide to fostering mental health while practicing physical distancing. Um, so we've been doing that since the beginning of the pandemic, so in, since March. And the first one we did was about the ant tools and how are you feeding the ant throughout the day? How are you making sure that, you, he's, that that part of your brain is strong? Um, and there are a number of ways that we can do that to be proactive. Um, and then also understanding when we're feeding each part of the brain, because if we're constantly feeding the grasshopper, if we're constantly feeding that emotional part of the brain, you know, looking through our social media and getting, getting ourselves angry, we are more likely to respond in an angry way. The other, we did another quick guide on why we're, um, why we're blowing up at people that we love. And it's about something called the resilience formula, um, which is kind of having a plan in place with people that you love, you know, thinking about in the household, having a plan with people saying, okay, when we're going to go into this limbic system response, how can we give each other feedback and how can we have a plan in place? Um, and that was sort of the crux of the resilience formula, which is that, that guide that the book that we had written a long time ago, I wrote it with uh, Joel Haber and that was kind of before the brain model. But the idea is that having a trigger script, having a script in place to, 
to give feedback saying, you know what, I'm in grasshopper mode or whatever it is to get away from that situation and then have those, wait till we're back into that ant mode and then have those conversations and how we can learn from those situations. Um, so I think that the biggest lesson for me is that the understanding the brain science can help us to be more proactive. With just a couple of minutes left, Michelle, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts for this work going forward? Obviously, we're in a very difficult time now, and it may be a prolonged difficult time. What's your hope for this work and the impact it can have? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, um, I really believe wholeheartedly that these practices are transformative. And, you know, we're, we're living in a time right now where we have so many adults that, again, kind of coming back to childhood, you know, these, these skills weren't taught. And we also have a great number of people and, and particularly our communities of color that have experienced tremendous trauma, not just personally, but historically. And we're really trying to look at ways that these practices can be really a bridge um, for people to connect, for people to understand, for people to step out of their own experience and, and see the experiences of another, and also use these practices as a form of healing, not just personally, but healing for our communities as well. And I really, I really truly believe that this is, this is one step that we can take. You know, this, this is my background, this is my purview, uh, but I have seen, you know, the impacts, the positive impacts, um, both personally and professionally. And I do believe that this is, you know, one strong step that we can take among many, right? Among many things that need to be shifted and, and changed. But this is one um, that we can really root ourselves in and, and provide to, to all people in, in some small way. Michelle Palladini and Donna Valpita, I really want to thank you for joining us today. And even more than that, I want to thank you for the tremendous work you're doing and moving forward these practices. You can learn more about Michelle's work at michellepalladini.com and about Donna's work at pathwaystoempower.com. And you can learn more about the MPLI, including our new online crisis leadership courses at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Until the next episode, be ready to lead. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.